The views you're about to hear on the Dr. Plus podcast are those of the individual participants and not their employers, any other organization, or the American College of Physicians. So let's get to it. Welcome to Dr. Plus, the podcast where we explore the hobbies, activities, and adventures outside of medicine that make our friends and colleagues truly amazing. I'm Saganish, an academic internal medicine and public health doctor practicing in St. Paul. And I'm David, an internal medicine doctor practicing hospital and clinical medicine in downtown Minneapolis. We recognize our colleagues for their clinical work, research, or incredible academic achievements, but we often don't get to hear about the other sides of their lives, their pluses. Here on this podcast, we get to spend a few minutes getting to know each other in a new way. Guys, thank you for coming to the session. We're really excited to be able to spend some time with Megan. The premise for this is that uh, David Hilden and I have started a podcast called Dr. Plus, which is going to be released in the next few weeks. What it is, is we know our colleagues are amazing clinicians, researchers, everything like that. But what we want to know is the plus. What is the thing that they do outside of medicine that fills them and uh, is interesting um, and kind of, I don't know, it's good. It's been really fun. We're going to start with how we start every podcast, which is, Megan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. So far, so good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so Megan, tell us, what is your nine to five? What is your day job? What do you do? So I am an infectious disease physician at the Minneapolis VA. And it is not a nine to five job because I only work half time, oh. which is sort of amazing. So I am exactly 50% time. Um, so my normal week is two and a half days. When I'm on service, I work, I work full time, obviously, during those weeks. But most of my weeks, I'm working two and a half days. Clinic. So you do clinical work? Clinical work and uh, inpatient infectious disease and inpatient uh, internal medicine. Okay. I know you've had a big history also in medical education. That was part of your work as well in the past. Are you doing any of that now? Yes. So I was um, the U of M internal medicine residency APD mm-hmm. for 10 years, I think. Um, and then uh, ended up in 2020 uh, transitioning over um, to just being one of our core faculty. Uh-huh. So I'm still involved in the, in the residency program, but just at a much smaller, uh, to a much smaller degree. I love this. You still work with residents and med ed. Correct. Awesome. So that is what you do. And your plus has become, I've gotten to know you because of your storytelling. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I think it's much better to show than tell. So Megan has prepared a story for us that she shared recently at a slam, right? Correct. The title of this story is The Opposite of Loneliness. I was living in Boulder, Colorado with three roommates in a cheap apartment. It had terrible carpet and greasy linoleum, but if I stood at the very corner of the porch and craned my head to the side, I could just catch a glimpse of the flat iron stretching up at the sun. Boulder was my place to heal up and sort things out. I'd always planned on going from college to med school, but ended up having to take time off because of depression, and so I didn't finish my pre-med requirements and I was late taking the MCAT. So after graduation, I moved to Boulder, signed up for a god-awful biochemistry course, and, uh, and got a job as a waitress. And even though I had a plan and plenty of friends, I still felt unsure and alone. A few weeks after arriving in Boulder, I saw a flyer in the bathroom of my favorite coffee shop. 
A local company was looking for home healthcare aides. No experience required, so I like, caught my attention. Um, and I distinctly remember this flyer. There were all these pictures of very professional looking people doing important things. And one of the pictures was, it was like two young women. One of them was clearly the caregiver. One looked very ill. She was pale and bald. And the caregiving woman was like, handing her some medicine and the woman in bed was looking up like very appreciatively and so as i was peeing i was like i want a job where i do important things and so the next day i dropped off my application uh, at the company headquarters it was in like a super shabby strip mall off of arapahoe avenue and the following week i was invited to a group interview at a denny's restaurant and I remember showing up and being a little surprised by the group of us that had arrived. None of us really looked like the people in the flyer. I think two of the people were like wearing pajamas. <laughs> um, but we all got a, a free Big Slam breakfast just for showing up. They're big. Um, and then we took turns answering these sort of generic questions asked by two very unenthusiastic interviewers in monotone. And I sort of was like pushing around my pancakes and was like wondering like, is this really a job interview? But apparently it was because at the end we all just got hired on the spot. My first client, um, at two that were initially assigned to me. The first, um, her name was Esther. She was 104. She lived with her 82-year-old daughter who still went jogging every day. That's like so bolder. Um, and so I, in my memory, Esther was like tiny, like the size of like a little child. And she spent almost all of her time in bed with a little lace comforter kind of pulled up over her chest. And most of the time she was quiet, but occasionally she would squawk out and I would go running to her bedside and she would be there with her eyes closed and her mouth open like a little baby bird. And I would kind of try and comfort her, but I didn't really know how. And I felt scared and then ashamed that I felt so scared. So I spent most of my time at Esther's sitting on the couch, eating hard candies from this little crystal bowl that they had, and just like praying that she didn't die. And, uh, and so from Esther's, I would get on my bike and I would ride over to Gloria's. And Gloria was this sweet old woman who lived in a tiny, tiny apartment with hundreds of little glass figurines that I was responsible for dusting and reorganizing. And uh, once I finished dusting and reorganizing and putting everything just the way she wanted it, I would sit on the carpet and I would cut Gloria's thick toenails while we watched reruns of The Price is Right and she would tell me all about her GI troubles in like great detail. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of had this sense all of a sudden, I was like, I'm not really providing very much care for these people, definitely not life-saving care. And, you know, I thought about the people in the flyer and, and I really thought things would be very different. After several weeks, I agreed to take on a third client. Uh, her name was Donna. She lived 15 miles outside of Boulder in this suburb called Broomfield, which meant that I had to drive in really crappy traffic through these like endless subdivisions to get there. And the first time I went to Donna's, um, I was late and I was stressed and frustrated and annoyed at myself for agreeing to take this one on. I knocked on the door and I heard this like very croaky distant voice say, just come in, I'm in the bedroom. So I opened the door to this first floor apartment and I am met with like a wall of cigarette smoke. Like, I mean, I could barely breathe and I didn't want to cough because I thought that'd be sort of rude, but you really could hardly see the cigarette smoke was so, was so dense. And so I, I opened up the apartment and it's really dark too, all the shades are pulled and it's a tiny little alley apartment. And I walk through 
And in the back is the bedroom. And I hear someone inside, and I'm very nervous, and I, I slowly walk through the door. And sitting at the edge of the bed is like a shockingly thin old woman. And she is wearing this bright orange robe. And her hair is kind of crazy. It's pulled back with a big pink headband. And she's wearing these lace gloves that were like cut off like Madonna's, like 1980s. And she has in between these two sort of misshapen fingers, a cigarette is dangling. And she's got this kind of brown, crooked teeth, but she has this huge open smile. And she says, hi, I'm Donna. And she like coughs as she talks. And I said, hi, Donna, I'm Megan. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm here, I'm your healthcare aide. Like, what would you like me to do? And she's like, I have no idea. I've never had anyone like you before. So she's like, maybe just make a pot of coffee. So I'm like, all right. So from her little perch on the bed, she like directs me how to make a pot of coffee in a percolator. I don't know if anyone's used a percolator. It's like a thing. So I make this pot of coffee. and It is like the most terrible coffee you've ever tried. But Donna doesn't seem to care. So I say, OK, Donna, what can I do for you now? And she says, I don't know. Why don't you just sit down and talk? And so that's what we did for like a year. I, uh, I would show up. I would make a terrible pot of coffee. And we would drink the coffee. And we would talk. And she told me so much. She told me about her childhood, her travels, her lovers, all the mistakes she'd made in raising her daughter who left home when she was 17 and never called. And oh, sorry. She told me about her disease, which was RA. I knew nothing about it at the time except that her left, left her joints all bulbous and her toes all crooked and misshapen. She smoked nonstop, and she used a campfire lighter to light her cigarettes. <laughs> and she loved lava lamps and conspiracy theories. And she always warned me about the poisonous chemtrails coming out of the airplanes that we could catch glimpses of through the slats in her blinds crisscrossing the cloudless Colorado sky. She laughed when I teased her about the chemtrails coming out of her cigarettes. <laughs> I told her that I'd been sad for many years, and I never really understood why. And she said that she'd been sad a lot too, but that it was OK, because it didn't mean that I would be sad forever. And then she smiled. And I could rarely get her out of her apartment on account of the chemtrails. But when I could talk her, talk her into it, I'd bring her out in her wheelchair, and then I'd run her down the sidewalk zigzag just to make it more exciting. And she would laugh, and she had a wonderful laugh. One day, she told me that it was nice not to feel lonely. And I said, yeah, Donna. It is really nice not to feel lonely. And then I found out that I got into medical school. And I thought and I thought about how I was going to tell Donna that I was leaving. And I thought about caregiving and love and loneliness and how they had somehow gotten all lumped together in my mind in a confusing jumble. Finally, I got up the courage to tell Donna that I'd be leaving at the end of the summer. And in that same breath, I told her I was going to get her a cat. She'd had cats. She'd had cats for like most of her life. She'd always show me pictures of them. And her, her favorite thing to say is she's like, I treated them like queens. Um, and she said, I would love a cat, Megan, but uh, it's not going to work because cats aren't allowed. No pets are allowed in my apartment building. And I said, Donna, I don't care about that dumb rule, which is funny because normally I care about all rules, even dumb ones. <laughs> um, so I went to the Humane Society. And unfortunately, I found out very quickly that if you live in an apartment, you have to have a letter from your landlord saying that it's OK to have a pet. But I was already breaking rules, so I was like, OK, I'm not going to let this stop me. So I called my own landlord, and I somehow talked her into filling out the forms. She's amazing. 
So then I went back to the Humane Society. <laughs> they put me in this little tiny closet of a room, and then volunteers would bring in like one cat after another, and you could like meet them. And I'm a dog person. I don't really understand cats. So they would like bring in a cat, and I'd be like, come. Come, girl, come. <laughs> and then the cat would look at me like, you are such an idiot. And a couple times I like would kind of grab the cat and try and scratch the cat, because that's like, you know, what you do with the dog. And these like unnaturally sharp claws would like dig into my flesh. And, and I sort of was wondering, I was like, maybe the Humane Society found out that I falsified those documents and this is like some sort of punishment. So then I was thinking like, well, maybe I should just give Donna a fish. Um, but then the volunteer brought in this giant white cat. It was giant, and it had blue eyes and gray ears, and it immediately like jumped on my lap and put its head under my chin. And it let me scratch like a dog, like real hard behind the ears, and liked it. And so I was like, I love this cat. This is the cat. So I snuck the cat into Donna's apartment in a grocery bag, <laughs> a little paper bag, I walked in, and uh, brought it back to Donna. She was sitting on her bed. And I set the bag down, and the cat came out. And Donna like, <gasps> and immediately the cat jumped up on Donna's lap and she put her head right up to Donna. And I saw Donna's tangled hands on the cat's white fur and big tears came down Donna's face. The next week I stocked up Donna's apartment with all the gear for the cat, who Donna had named Miss Royal. And the final step in my mission was making sure that the aide who was taking over for me was like okay with this whole plan of the secret cat. And she was, so that was great. So I said goodbye to Donna and Miss Royal and I left Colorado. Donna and I wrote letters after I first moved to Baltimore, but then I got so busy and we lost touch. On a wet fall day during my fourth year of medical school, a large padded envelope showed up in my, in my uh, mailbox. I opened it up and like immediately smelled cigarettes. <laughs> And the first thing I pulled out was a picture of Donna. She was sitting on her usual spot on her bed, a cigarette in her hand, a funny bow in her hair, and Miss Royal was sitting on her lap. There were a couple other things in the envelope that I remembered from her apartment, a silver um, charm bracelet and a beaded purse. And then at the very bottom was a letter from Donna's daughter. She explained that Donna had become ill several months before and had reached out to her wanting to make amends. And she ended up caring for Donna until she died, peacefully at home, two weeks before. And she wrote that Miss Royal was Donna's constant companion during her last days. She sat on Donna's pillow, purring and resting her head on Donna's cheek. Shortly before Donna died, Miss Royal moved to Donna's chest, where she lay so still until Donna breathed her last breaths. And after Donna died, Miss Royal jumped off the bed and threw up on the floor. Donna's daughter promised to take good care of Miss Royal and thanked me for being Donna's friend. And that was it. I didn't even write back. But I still think of Donna all the time. Mostly I think about what she taught me about being a caregiver, a giver of care. It's a term we use all the time without much thought. When we see someone in the hospital, we say, I'm going to be taking care of you while you're here. But what does that mean? Is it prescribing medications? ordering labs, doing the things I saw in the flyer. That's where I got confused and where Donna straightened me out. Caring is something that can be hidden in tiny, seemingly unimportant actions. Caring is connection, like a thread, between two living beings. It's not a sacrifice on anyone's part, because as you provide care, you receive care if you just take time to see it and feel it. Even an abandoned cat can do that.
Sometimes when I'm feeling alone or scared or unsure, I step back and try to see all the threads that stretch from me and to me. And in this silvery labyrinth, I see Donna with her sweet smile and Miss Royal, the cat queen. And I slow down and try to really feel. And what I feel is the opposite of loneliness. I have so many questions. <laughs> Tell me about the process of writing that story. Like, how, what is your story writing and storytelling process? Well, you know, it's funny because it wasn't until really recently that I started, like, telling my stories out loud mm -hmm. <laughs> to anyone other than, like, my, cat, my dog. <laughs> Not my cat. I don't have a cat. I definitely don't have a cat. Um, you know, I, I've always been someone who's, like, very much in my head, mm -hmm. and I make up stories all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so this story was one that I had, like, been forming in my head for a long, long time. And so it was, like, basically I just, like, sat down and wrote it. Wrote it. Because it was already in my, mm -hmm. in my head. So you, you see these connections, because what I loved about the story is all these like layers and layers of connection and the way you're able to bring in humor and poignancy. It's such a beautiful telling. Do you find it, so when you transition to telling the story, because that's very different than writing it, talk a little bit about that. You know, I think that telling is actually pretty easy because it's already been in my brain for so long. Mm -hmm. Like I. I tell it in my head. The writing is actually the harder part okay. for me. Um, I don't feel like I'm a very good writer. It's much more of like the this, this story. Uh huh. But you write it first anyway. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting because you know some storytellers will just record or they'll just yeah. like work on the oral presentation because yeah. of like that part of it. But the writing is an important part of your process as yeah. well. Yeah. How does this inform your practice? Has you, have you noticed an influence there? And do, you just, do patients know that you do this or? No, I think it's sort of the opposite. Like my practice informs the stories. The stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I feel so lucky that I'm in infectious disease where most of my time is spent just talking to patients. Yeah. It's yeah. my favorite thing in the world is hearing patient stories. It is. Like sometimes it makes me sad. Like this morning when, when uh, Andrew Olson was saying like, our notes are way too long. I'm like, but I like my notes, Brandy. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're grandchild and their cat yes. and their, yeah. you know, where they're going for their winter break. Like um, to me, that's the, the, the most meaningful part of, of my job. Is the patients. Is the and patients the and like yeah. their stories. And the stories are incredible. They're incredible. Know? I think yeah. people are so interesting. I think we are one of the most interesting things on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. If I didn't have a job, this is what I'd be doing is just randomly talking, <laughs> just talking to, people. to people. 100%. Yeah. 100%. You should have been an infectious disease doctor. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things I should have been. Uh, questions from the audience. If you have a question, raise your hand. Um, so you've gotten to perform some of your stories at the local slams that we've talked about and yeah. then the Nocturna show. What do you think of performing? Like, is that, and sharing your stories in a larger venue like that, what does that feel like and what has that experience been like? I mean, it's been terrifying, actually. Because <laughs> I'm not natural. I'm, I'm, like, pretty uncomfortable, like, in a, in a stage sort mm -hmm. of setting. Mm -hmm. I've given plenty of medical talks, and I don't get nervous for those anymore because, yeah, it's just... It's just a talk. You're it's like, just I a mean, talk, it's you know, just, you got your slides, like whatever. It's like a little bit of facts. Um, and, yeah. and it's not the, you know, someone asked me like, are you nervous? Cause it's like the personal aspect of it. It's, it's not like I'm kind of an open book. Like I'm happy to share whatever you want to hear about me. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think it's just the pressure of having all those eyes on you. Watching you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Leo and an extrovert with a capital E, so that's like my joy spot. I'm like, I'm just, <laughs> like stand up here and let people watch me. I know, that's why you have a podcast and I don't. <laughs> um, where do you see this taking you? I mean, not that you have to have a five-year plan for this, but yeah. have you thought about, oh, I kind of want to do this thing next with it or go there with it? You know, I haven't really. I mean, isn't that funny? I spent so much of my life like being so goal-oriented, mm-hmm. and it was weird when I when I switched my career path, I felt like this weird creativity come back that I'd always had when I was young. Um, I was a really creative kid and, and I lost it and I lost it as I was like pushing, pushing, pushing to like do things. And so in some ways, like I'm just sort of enjoying the feeling of creating things, even if it just stays in my own head. So you, you say you're a creative kid. Like, mm-hmm. tell me about that. We went to high school together in full yeah. disclosure. <laughs> That's so funny. American totally ex- different We were in American Experience together. We were in American Experience together, which was, I think, the best class we had in mm-hmm. high school. So sure. talk about that, like your creativity showing up and... Yeah. Um, I mean, I... Um, well, I've, I've journaled forever. Mm-hmm. I had, like, a gap in journaling from, like, residency until, like pretty recently, mm-hmm. but my kids recently found my like old journals. I mean, I had journals from like first grade. <laughs> they were so dramatic. Like today, one of them was like, I, I don't remember the date and I don't ever want to. Today, Chipper the Third died. <laughs> Chipper the Third was my hamster. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I have like boxes and boxes and boxes amazing. of journals. Yeah. And then uh, I wrote a lot of poetry when I was young. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, yeah, I, oddly, I think I just didn't find time for it as academics kind of picked up. And I think, we've, you know, we were, I think when we were training, it was so binary, like you did science or you were creative. There wasn't a lot of examples of people doing the in-between. And I remember going to a national ECP meeting in New Orleans, and the best talk I ever went to was how creativity is an essential part of our medical practice. And so it was, um, it was... It was one of the times where, like, on a national platform, someone was like, you need to be creative. You need to tap into art and music and writing and cooking in whatever ways that feeds it if you want to be a good doctor. Not, like, as a side effect, but it's an yeah. integral part of your practice. Yeah, I think it's very true. Go ahead, Amy. Do you feel Thank like you, your David. passion for stories and storytelling and your infectious disease like causality or just a convenient association? You know, I think it is part of the reason why I chose infectious disease. Like I remember doing the rotation as a medical student and, and just like being so drawn to those stories. Like it's actually a field where like you could write a long social history and that's like acceptable. It's necessary. Um, Yeah. I had to know if she was into pigeons. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course I did. Essential. Yeah. Yes. So I think, I think it like, it like called to that part of me. Mm. Yeah. Um, Megan, I think one of my favorite parts of your stories is you include these like very interesting details and observations that really like transport someone there, like from Madonna gloves and her yeah. And um, I think it makes me think of um, Dr. Olson has this interesting class at the med school where they talk about physical exam, and one of them is actually, at least when I was in it a couple years ago, we would go to the art museum and try to work on our observation skills, and yeah. I just it was bringing me back to that, and I'm curious if you find that that's just sort of how you observe the world or do you really have to work on drawing out those details when you're working on your stories oh no it's totally how i observe the world it's really funny it's a weird it's a weird thing Hmm. but i think 
way more often in pictures than in words. Hmm. Like I have like a constant like flow of photo pictures in my in my head, and so yeah, those details are just sort of things that I that I lay down, I guess. Yeah. I have one thing that I that I do that if um, that I I didn't even realize I was consciously doing it, but you know I ride my bike, I bike commute, yeah, and. Uh, I would see things and then I, like an interesting thing and then make up stories about it in my head as I bike. Uh -huh. If any of you are like exercisers, like this is the best way to be like, wait, I just rode for an hour. I wasn't even like paying any attention. Um, but it's very funny because there's this uh, law firm that I biked by and they have like, it was like a something, something and, and sun. And then one day, masking tape showed up over the sun. And so you can't, my brain like went crazy. I mean, I spent, I mean, I spent like two weeks just like imagining like all the different things yeah, that could have happened yeah, to the yeah, sun. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a fun way to like go through the world um, if you can think about, you know, those little stories that are all around us. Oh, I 100% agree. Like I think about that when I read headlines and then a whole novel like comes to mind, yeah. you know, like you'll read about... Something, something, you know, like I was the kid that was on the bottom floor of blah, blah, blah. And then that's like my opening line for the novel I'm never going to write. You know what I mean? But I love opening lines. So yeah. awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing me. your story and like being here with us. And we look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Yeah. You're not, do you have, you, you don't know when you're going to do another one? No, I have no idea. So nothing to plug. There's nothing to plug, nothing you guys. Nothing to plug. <laughs> no, so, sorry. Uh, all right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank course. you guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dr. Plus. Dr. Plus is sponsored by generous funding from the American College of Physicians and is produced by Julie Sensuo.